hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with comedian, writer, actor and author Charlie Higson. So hi, Charlie. It's great to be chatting with you today. Well, likewise, likewise. Fantastic. So people will probably know you mostly for your work on The Fast Show, uh, your partnership with Paul Whitehouse, your work with Vic and Bob, uh, and also, of course, for your work as an author. But let's go back in time. Um, so what was your what was your childhood like? Were you a funny kid at school? Um, depends on your definition of funny, I suppose. <laughs> funny ha-ha versus funny peculiar. Um, I wasn't a sort of a class joker type. No. Yeah. Um, Oh, everything I've done really has always started with writing. Um, the performing sort of grew out of that. That being said, at school I did do, a, I put together a couple of plays which were sort of inspired by Monty Python, shall we say, or perhaps I should say ripped off Monty Python, but um, which had certain elements of, of comedy in them. So I, I always liked writing and I always liked certain aspects of performing but I, I was quite a sort of um shy and introverted boy so most of what was going on was going on inside my head um but i think you know the thing about comedy and humor is is it's such a part of all our lives and it's such a part of what binds us together socially and all our social interactions so you know i think every every kid at school really uses humor one way or another yeah, that's it. Whether it's a, as a defence mechanism or just, you know, a way of being part of the crowd, I suppose. Yes, I suppose I was more of the sort of um, the sort of snooty, specky schoolboy <laughs> who would make snide comments with their friends in the common room kind of thing. <laughs> Rather than standing on the table telling jokes to the class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You see, a lot of people, they're kind of funny. They're not really that funny in school, but... You know, they kind of go into their teens and they discover this whole new world and making people laugh and stuff. Yes, I think I think possibly a lot of um, stand-up comedians will say that they 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 discovered not all of them by any means they discovered humour as a sort of tool at, at school and and that it was useful to them and that that p- persists through their life because there is you know there is a weird psychological drive to make you want to go on stage by yourself as yourself mm. and make an audience laugh and make an audience like you um, we, we, I, I think probably quite a lot of stand-up comedians are psychopaths <laughs> um, but, I, but I was I never went through the stand-up comedy route I, I never really did any uh, live comedy before before doing the TV stuff yeah, I know you met Paul, uh, Paul Whitehouse, at the at UEA uh, yeah. in Norwich. So, how did that meeting come about? Were you in the same classes? Were you doing the same? No, it was it was 1977, and it was the sort of height of punk rock. And back then, very much, young people defined themselves by what music they listened to, and that would have a, a way of dressing that went with it. You know, if you were into heavy rock, you had longer hair and you had flares. Um, you know, if you're into disco, you had a different look. And if you're into punk, you had short hair and short trousers. Actually, I was talking to some young people about this the other day. Um, and they were absolutely, because they didn't get what I was talking about. I said, well, I look for the other people with, with straight trousers. <laughs> and they said, well, well, you know, everyone wears straight trousers. 
I said, no, no, in the 70s, everyone wore flares. You wore flare jeans. You couldn't buy straight jeans in shops. And they were amazed. They thought it was just a sort of hippie thing that if you were a hippie at a certain time, you wore them, rather than, in fact, it being the way that everybody dressed. So it was quite easy in 77 to spot those people who you thought might have the same mindset as you because they had short hair and they had straight trousers. Um, so, you know, we gravitated towards each other, uh, those who, who were like that, and um, me and Paul and some other friends formed a, a punk band. So that was really what, what bonded us was, was music. Because the 70s, it was before alternative comedy, it was before... Yeah. I mean, Harry Enfield, who we got to know through some friends, was younger than us and had been to uh, York University. And that was because that was more in the, in the early 80s when alternative comedy was, was, was becoming a thing. His way to get up on stage and ask about and entertain his mates and trying to get off with girls was to do comedy. But it wouldn't have crossed our minds, Paul and I, to, to, to do comedy. Although we did make each other laugh, and we we had a laugh. Back then, what you did, you, you formed a band. So, so yeah, we had we formed one of Norwich's first punk bands. <laughs> yeah, so you and Paul had, had a kind of shared sense of humour, I suppose. We do, but we're also very different. And I think yeah. that's why our partnership has been as strong and as fruitful as it has, is, is that we both come from very different backgrounds. He comes from a much more working-class background. Um, and I come from... I come... I approach things from probably from more of an intellectual angle, from ideas, and he, he approaches it more from an emotional angle, I suppose. He, a lot of his comedy comes from people he's met, uh, observing what people are saying and, and you know, using the phrases that they use and just saying, well, this is funny, let's do this, this is funny, let's do that. And I tend to then sort of structure it and intellectualise it and, 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 and to turn it into a, a, a working piece. So I think it's that fact that we are coming from a very different direction that, that works. But we, yes, we do have a shared sense of humour. We're the same age. We grew up loving Monty Python, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, and um, Clement Frenet Cook, stuff like Porridge. Um, so we went through all of that, and 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 yes. So on that level, there is a shared sense of humour. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so what did you end up doing when you left uh, UEA, job-wise? Well, I um, the first band, the punk band, sort of ex- exploded, imploded in a proper punk <laughs> way. We lasted less than a year, and 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 Paul and and most of the rest of the band were thrown out of university for not doing any work. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Um, so then I formed a new band with a new intake of students, which became uh, a band called The Higsons, which um, I carried on doing for six years after I left university as I was a singer in that band. And that was my job, was, 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 was being a singer in a band. Um, but I had started to do a bit of decorating on the side with a bass player mm-hmm. to make a bit of extra money. And the band had sort of reached a certain level and didn't seem to be going any further, and we worked out that if we stuck to decorating and knocked the band on the head, we could actually have quite a good income and live quite a nice life. So that's, that's what we did, and that was kind of the end of the band, really. Mm. So you did, I, I read somewhere that you did painting and decorating, obviously, with Paul, and you ended up decorating the house of Fry and Laurie at some point. That's right, we did. Um, I mean, it wasn't purely by chance. It was through Harry, who, who we all ended up living on the same... Uh, council estate in Hackney, yeah. me, Paul and Harry. 
uh, Harry was was forging a career in in comedy. First of all, doing live stuff on stage, and then through that, get, because he was doing characters, he he became one of the the team of voices on on Spitting Image, and he used that as a sort of way of getting into TV, which is what he always wanted to do. Um, and you know, Paul was your archetypal funny mate down the pub. Uh, and Harry nicked everything he could off Paul, including sort of various characters and, and voices. Uh, but he was always encouraging Paul to to write or do something. But Paul didn't think of himself as a writer. And through that through that period, Paul and uh, Paul was working as a plasterer. I was working as a decorator. Harry got to know Stephen and Hugh. They needed a decorator. He said, "Oh, you should use my mates, Charlie and Paul." So yeah, we did. We 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 decorated their house. We did a very good job. We were very good decorators. <laughs> Uh, and Fry and Laurie, they did the classic sort of post-student thing where four of them bought the house together. And as they became more successful, particularly Stephen, became phenomenally wealthy, they all they sold the house and all, all bought their own places. At which point, Paul and I, our career had taken off through working with Harry, doing Saturday Night Live, just Davros and loads of money, and the um, his early sketch show, Harry for television program. Our lives had changed enough that we actually bought the house off Stephen, and Paul and I lived there together for for a few years. So, I mean, how did the like the thing with Harry? Did it? How did it balance between the three of you, or what did it, did all of you just kind of bring something different to the to the table? Well, going back to what I was saying before, um, you know, I think I think the strength of, of, of Paul and I's partnership is 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 coming at it from a different way. If I wanted to be um, arty and pompous about it and uh, get into Sood's corner. Uh, I could say it's a bit like playing a piano where you've got a left hand and a right hand, where yeah. the left hand is sort of doing the stuff you don't much notice. It's holding down the... It's creating the structure. It's uh, creating the roots of the, the the melody and the harmonies and the chord structure, uh, and, it, and it's holding the piece together. But what you notice is the right hand fiddling about and dancing around all over the place and, and doing the stuff that catches the ear and that's very much with Paul and I that I was the left hand the left hand side of the partnership and he was more the right hand side Paul you know I think in a fairly unique way he is also you know obviously he's known as you know Charlie Higson and Paul Whitehouse our relationship but yeah. also Paul Whitehouse and Harry Enfield their relationship so he's been part of two sort of comedy setups, which which I think I can't think of anyone else who's really been in that position and that is, and that works because Harry is very much left hand to Paul's right hand. Um, so in the practicalities of when you're working together, mm. I tend to be the one who sits at the computer, writing it all down, structuring it, turning it into an actual sketch, while Paul will wander around the room throwing out ideas <laughs> and doing funny voices and, and stuff. I mean, it's not totally cut and dried like that. But I know when Paul works with Harry that Harry is the one at the computer. Uh, our our writing relationship between me, Paul, and Harry working together was a bit fraught mm. because Harry and I were too similar, and so we would butt up against each other a lot. Which is why, after a couple of series of Harry and for television program, I moved on because it just was not working. Harry was not ha- happy with it, and you know yeah. it was his show. He didn't like me trying to take any sort of uh, control or, or decisions in it. So it, it, it was better that I moved on, which meant that I was then in a position to, to properly concentrate on putting a fast show together. Mm, but, yes. but Paul was able to, 
you know, at the same time as we were doing the past show, he was also doing Harry Enfield mm. shows on, on BBC One to our BBC Two. Yeah. So yeah, obviously, like, like the fast show, uh, it was it was huge. It was so so big. And so, where did the initial idea for the fast show come from? Well, we've been all been working together with Harry, which had started doing Saturday Night Live, and then, as I said, doing his sketch show. But Paul and I. You know, we were considered, oh, these guys are Harry Enfield's writers. And obviously Harry wrote as well and other, other people, but that was sort of how we were perceived. And we didn't really want to be just perceived as Harry Enfield's writers mm. for all time. We wanted to do stuff in our own right away from him. So as we were doing the sketch show with Harry, we started compiling a collection of sketches that for one reason or another just weren't right for Harry's show. Either there was no proper role for Harry or... Harry didn't like them, or they didn't fit in the style of what we were doing. So we started collecting this pile of stuff, but we didn't really know how we were going to do it to make it significantly different to to Harry's show, which was character comedy, which mm. is what we wanted to do. So we started making various decisions. I mean, Harry's show was very much Harry and Paul, so we thought, okay, Paul's going to be a big selling factor if we do another show, but we don't want it to be the Paul Whitehouse show. We definitely wanted it to be a classic sketch show comedy team. So we knew various people that we'd worked with or were friends with uh, that we wanted to use, which became the Fast Show team. So then it was just a way of thinking, well, well, stylistically, how would we make this different enough to Harry's show to give us a chance? And the producer, Jeffrey Perkins, who was one of the greatest comedy producers of all time, sadly died far too young, um, and if anyone wants to look up his credits on Wikipedia or whatever, he, he was an extraordinary guy. Um, he was the producer on Harry's show. And for the second series, they, w- they always used to do proper press launches in those days where you'd get all the major press from all the newspapers and, and whatever, and you would show them an episode and then you'd do a sort of Q&A. But for this one, Jeff said, I'm not going to show them an episode. I'm just going to do a compilation of clips of little bits of all the new characters we're doing and some of the highlights of the series. And Paul and I, we didn't think this was a great idea. We said, well, you, you can't just show little bits of these characters. They won't mean anything to anybody. It won't work. He said, no, I'll, I'll put it together. I think it, I think it does work quite well, uh, and I think it gives a good flavour of the show. And he showed it, and it was very funny, and everyone really enjoyed it. And it was a light bulb moment for me and Paul. We sort of looked at that and thought, would it be possible to do a show that was just the highlights, that was just the funny bits, that you cut all the other stuff out, all the massive long setups that you'd have traditionally in a sketch, um, and that the characters, if they were strong enough, you could just bring them on for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and then off onto something else. Um, so that that really was our, our starting point, and, that, that, and that's what gave us a way of presenting to people and saying, well, you know, this is our plan, this is what we, we want to do. And Luckily, the timing was right that an, a new controller had started at BBC Two, Michael Jackson. It was a fantastic time in the 90s. There was an amazing lineup of comedy executives at the BBC. There was Jeffrey Perkins, there was John Plowman, who's a legendary producer and executive, there was Paul Jackson, who's an amazing entertainment guy, there was David Liderman, who'd come from Granada, who was, who was a fantastic entertainment guy. And so comedy was a really big, important thing at the BBC. And if you look back, there, there was a huge number of really good, strong comedies 
came out in the 90s, mainly because of that set up at the BBC. And Michael Jackson had just started at BBC Two, and we managed to get a meeting with him. What had happened is he, he realised he'd lost quite a lot of the big BBC Two comedies, had become so popular they'd moved across to, to BBC One. So mm. he, he had space in his schedules and he wanted new stuff. And we said to him, look, we've been trying to develop this, we've been talking to a few people and going to a few places, we just want to know, would you have any interest in it and doing it at, at, on BBC Two? And he said there and then in the meeting, he said, if you bring it into the BBC and do it in-house rather than via an independent production company, I will commission you today. And we said, okay. <laughs> and that was that. Now, anyone who works in comedy and TV will tell you the BBC does not work like that anymore. No, no. And no one, no individual really has the power to do that. But that was part of the confidence at the time. And, uh, you know, we... You know, Harry Enfield Television Programme was massive. You said just now, oh, the fast show was massive. We had half the viewing figures of Harry Enfield's show. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah, it was a much, much bigger show. Um, it was BBC One, it was mainstream. But weirdly, Harry never put those shows out on DVD. I'm not sure why. So they are not as... They haven't been sort of kept alive in the same way. That being said, you know, you look on YouTube... Harry Enfield clips from his show have got many millions more views than, than, the, than the Vars show clips. But the Vars show sort of worked in a, in a different way. But in terms of actual numbers, Harry Enfield's show was far, far bigger. So we had the clout from that. We had a background and we went into BBC. And then again, we were lucky that we tried to get all the producers that we liked. So we started with Geoffrey Perkins. He couldn't do it because he had... He was actually leaving the BBC and going to Hattrick Productions, so he couldn't work on a BBC series. Um, John Lloyd is the other, was the other really big producer, and he was happily ensconced doing adverts at the time and said he, at that time, didn't want to come back and do TV. So we went through the list, and no one that we really wanted, because producers in TV comedy are really, really important. They have a very, very powerful role, much more than a director. Uh, it's the producers, the writers. And in the end... The BBC said, well, look, you seem to know this show inside out. Why don't you just produce it? Um, and I'd learned the basics of, of producing by, by sitting alongside Geoffrey Perkins making Harry's show. He was very generous in, in training people. Mm. So we said, all right, yeah, we'll do it. They gave us a certain amount of money and said, go away and make a show. And we did. There was no interference. We didn't really know what we were doing. They, we edited it exactly how we wanted to make it, shot it how we wanted to make it, and brought it back and said, there's a show. Um, it wasn't an instant hit. It was a slow start. I think it went out quite late night on a Tuesday night when it started, like half ten or eleven or yeah. so. Uh, not many people watched it. Uh, the BBC was thinking of dropping it after one series, but towards the end of the series it did start to pick up a sort of cult status. It got a very fanatical and devoted following of people because of the fact that... I mean, it's, it's hard to, to see it now because we're so used to it and we've had so many other sort of types of comedy since that it didn't look and feel like other comedies at the time because of that disjointed, broken-up nature and, the sh and things coming and going before you had a chance to really know what they were. Because everybody knows all the characters now and knows yeah. how the show works. They just think, oh, that's the fast show and that's what it is. But it, it, it was... people. A lot of people didn't get it to start with. But a couple of very influential TV critics, Nancy Banks-Smith at The Guardian, and in fact John Peel at the Radio Times, which was a very important publication at the time, both championed the show 
and we were able to to come back and carry on doing it so as with so many things it was being in the right place at the right time yeah. having to meet the right people and things just slotting into place yeah and even the the cast i suppose everyone was all doing all doing their same things i remember simon day doing uh, tommy cockles you know back in the yeah. day with his character comedy um so did everyone kind of bring their own would they, did they bring any characters, or was that something that you formulated once you had the idea for the first show? Well, for the first series, because Paul, had, Paul and I had been developing it, we'd sort of created most of it on paper. So for that series, we, you, Paul and I did the bulk of the writing and the creating of the characters, and we'd say, OK, we've got this character, we think John, John will be good at that, and whatever. But we always did, because they were all, all writer performers, we obviously encouraged them to come up with as much stuff as they could so mm. you know uh, Caroline brought in Roy and Reenie and Janine Simon did uh, Billy Bleach the guy in the pub all the bells so so yeah they did all have stuff of their own and we encouraged that and, and, and after the first series they all had a lot more confidence to do a lot more of that side of things and to kind of know what what things worked the rest of the cast tended to only create characters for themselves, which was fine. Paul and I would still create new characters for the, for the whole team and kind of pull the whole thing together. But I think that one of the strengths of the show was the fact that we did have seven very different personalities all bringing stuff to it. So yeah. Mark had come from, uh, you know, he'd been at the Royal Shakespeare Company and doing a lot of drama as well as comedy. So he, he was coming from the point of view. Of, of a strong acting background, but, but was you know, naturally a very funny person and a very funny performer. John and Simon had both come off the stand-up circuit, John starting by doing impressions and then the two of them doing characters together. As you say, Simon had been doing things like um, Tommy Cockles, which we you know, incorporated into the show. Um, they had, uh, John had worked with Caroline in Manchester. Mm. They'd done a comedy pilot, Steve Coogan, John and Caroline together, which was very funny, and I, I think Granada were mad not to actually make it, but it, it was only ever seen locally, and Caroline was quite a big big name in Manchester. We didn't know her particularly, but other than seeing her sister Mary Immaculate character that she'd been doing on the circuit. So John and Simon said, oh, you've got to use Caroline, she's brilliant, and, and we got her in, and she was, and she's extraordinary extraordinary talented person. Arabella was a friend of ours who we'd, we'd used in various sketches before on, on like Harry's show and things and knew that she'd be very good, strong to keep the female side of things up, which was important to us. So it, it, it was that, you know, and then Paul and I had come from a writing background, but obviously uh, Paul particularly is a, is a fantastically talented, natural performer, yeah. you know, with no sort of training or anything. He, he, so, so that mix is, is what gave the show its variety and its depth and its occasional sort of strangeness. It was Paul and I who held it together so it wasn't just a disparate bunch of people doing different things. We gave the, sh the show its character and its, and its form. But I think that's why it was, it was as strong as it was and, it, and it's had such long, longevity. You know, the likes of Matt and David doing uh, Little Britain mm. where just the two of them, they're playing all the parts and they're, they're writing it all. That is really hard work. 
work. And I think after a while, there's a danger that you, you just burn out and you just can't keep coming up with the goods. So the fact it was that was one of the reasons why it was important to us to make it a team, so that we had as much material coming in from as many different directions as we could. And we also had, you know, established comedy script writers would, would send the stuff and members of the public would send stuff in and we used probably a couple of unsolicited sketches from members of the public in every series. So, you know, in any comedy, and particularly in sketch comedy, you need a huge amount of potential material that you can then whittle down and whittle down and whittle down. And that was what the process was on the far show, was kind of distilling everything down to what we felt was the core funny thing there. Yeah. I mean, did you have a process for creating characters? You know, like obviously like Ted and Ralph. We had Johnny Nice Painter was one of my absolute favourites. Not a set process. They came from many different directions. Ted and Ralph was created and originally written by Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews, right. who we had known, we'd, we'd met them when they came over to England from Ireland uh, because a friend of ours became their um, agent. They were very funny writers, and we got them in as writers on the first series, and that was one of the characters that came up. It was very late in the day, actually, almost just before we started actually filming. Johnny Painter came about because I, and again, I suppose it, it, it's a way of defining how I approach things and how other people approach things. I'd always found those sort of Sunday afternoon watercolorist painters very funny. Those guys you would see in harbours in Cornwall painting the boats and their paintings would be on sale in the local craft shop and they would, you know, they would occasionally make videos or, or be on TV talking about it. and they would do these very twee, pretty little pictures with no depth or substance and they all looked like Johnny Painter does. People are still always sending me things on Twitter <laughs> and that thing. I've just seen Johnny Painter in my local town. Um, and I thought it would be very funny if this twee harbour painter who did terribly twee paintings had the soul of a tortured artist, had a sort of Van Gogh streak to him and believed himself to be this great artist struggling with, with his art. And I'd never quite worked out exactly how to do that. And then in, completely independently, one of our other writers, a guy called Brendan O'Casey, who, who lives on a farm down in Cornwall, um, and he wrote some of the sort of stranger stuff for the show. He wrote in and said, I've got this new character. He's one of these Sunday afternoon painters. His was very much based on, there's a guy called Alwyn Crawshaw, I think, who does instructional videos. And he had written these sketches where, for one reason or another, it's never really explained, this painter suddenly is triggered by the word black. <laughs> And, and, and goes into these mad poetic rants. And I thought, well, if we both sort of independently come up with a similar idea, there's got to be a good idea. So I, I put the two together, the stuff I'd been working on and stuff that Brendan was working on. And um, that did become, you know, it was a great character. And particularly because Brendan had this unique knack for writing the mad, strange lines that Johnny comes out with when, he, when, he's, when he's off on one, which I could never have done. So that was a great collaboration. Yeah. Other characters came different ways. You know, we would write in the first series and Paul came in one day and said, well, what about a character that coughs? And we thought, yeah, that's funny. Um, people who lose control of themselves are always funny. <laughs> and I think coughing is a sort of acceptable thing to laugh at someone for. So then we thought, well, what would be the worst job for someone with a cough to have? And we think, well, TV presenter, that wouldn't be good. They thought, great, okay. So we got a coughing TV presenter and we thought, you know... He, He's not really aware of it, 
so he doesn't realise it's a problem. And we thought, what a TV presenter would be fun to do. And we'd both grown up loving Jack Hargreaves. Right, yeah. Who did these sort of shows about country matters from his garden shed. And he would look at some old horse brasses and talk about them and make these little films. And it was all very gentle and lovely and warm and cosy and nostalgic. We thought, well, let's do a sort of Jack Hargreaves figure. He's trying to tell us about these country matters, but he just keeps coughing. So that came together from... Paul's kind of just emotional, funny thing of a character that coughs, and me thinking, how do we structure that? How do we make that into a thing? And that's how it uh, sort of developed and came together. So, so as I say, mine would usually come from an idea of like a character who does such and such, uh, which means that, and Paul would come in and say, I just met this bloke fishing. He's from the Malt Whiskey, President of the Malt Whiskey Society in Edinburgh, and we were sitting around the campfire every night, and nobody could understand a single word he was saying. And he did an impression, and of course that became Rolly Birkin. So characters all came from all different, all different places. Um, did it surprise you how sort of ingrained? some of the catchphrases became in sort of British culture. You know, I remember, you know, everyone sort of throwing out catchphrases in the street and with your friends and stuff. Um, it was very gratifying that quite a lot of our catchphrases over the years have sort of become part of British culture and are used by people and are often used by people who don't know where they came from. <laughs> I mean, that was never our intention. You can't design something to work like that. But... You know, the very first thing that we created from scratch for television was loads of money. Yeah, Um, huge. And again, loads of money came and went pretty quickly, so younger people probably don't know what loads of money was, but it was 88, 89, and it became the biggest comedy thing in the country. And the catchphrase, loads of money, (laughs) was used by everybody. And because it was a live show, we could then build on that each week and respond to how that was going down in, in the public. The tabloids were picking up, is this the real loads of money? And it got as far as Neil Kinnock accusing <laughs> Margaret Thatcher of creating a loads of money economy. <laughs> and Margaret Thatcher in the House of Commons said, we have been accused of creating a loads of money economy. <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? And she obviously didn't know the character or she would have known what was wrong with that. <laughs> But it is, you know, so that catchphrase is part of our parliamentary records of this country. Everything that is said in Parliament is written down in Hansard, and, and so there it is, we are enshrined in the British Constitution. Um, so we always knew the power of the catchphrase. Now, people sort of say, well, what did you do? You just write down a load of catchphrases and then put some characters to it, and it, it obviously wasn't that. You would create a character, and particularly on the fire show where characters were on and off pretty quickly, mm. you needed to pin them down quickly. They needed to have... You know, we found in the writing that certain words and phrases would encapsulate the full nature of that character. And that, that became, you know, an easy way of saying, bang, here's this character and this is what he does. I mean, Mark Williams was the best at it with, <laughs> with characters like You Ain't Seen Me, right? Yeah, Jesse. Where that's all yeah. he does. Simply does the catchphrase <laughs> and then gets off. And that is the absolute essence of the far show. And, and it's an extraordinary thing, the catchphrase, because... A catchphrase in itself is not in any way funny. It is simply a phrase. The phrase suits you, sir, well, suit you, sir, as it properly is, is not funny. But there's a weird Pavlovian 
thing, built-in response thing, that if people are expecting you to say it, if people are expecting you to say it and you then say it, people find that inordinately funny. And the people have done a lot of research on this uh, and written books about it. But yeah, a catchphrase itself is not funny, but somehow it just works. And you keep repeating it, it just gets funnier. So, it, you know, because of the nature of the show, these very short bits and pieces, mm. it, it was important to us that we had these recurring phrases. I mean, the catchphrase grew out of the British music hall tradition. So, yeah, so in the days of the music hall, where an act would come around once a year, you put their catchphrase on the on the billboard outside the theatre, like, Arthur, where's my washboard? Yeah, and yeah. people would remember, oh, I remember him. He said, where's my washboard? Over and over again. Uh, he was funny. I'll, I'll buy a ticket and go and see him again. So it becomes a, a way of branding and advertising yourself, really. And it's very useful. And Paul and I grew up loving catchphrases. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like a shared experience, isn't it? Like when you're in school and stuff and everyone's... You, you watch something on TV the night before and you go into school and everyone's saying, oh, did you see that sketch last night? And, you know, the catchphrases yes, exactly. and stuff. And if you've got that line that the kids can then do their script is written for them and they can act it out and you know Paul and I would do that you know the, the, you know, you'd do the Gumbies of Monty Python or the uh, Nudge Nudge Wink Wink Say No More uh, it's easy for you and, it, and yes it, it, exactly as you say it becomes that, that shared experience and everyone can join in and, and then next time you see that character say that line again it triggers something inside you and you feel warm and happy and you laugh yeah. and Steve Martin wrote a fantastic book about comedy and his, his comedy and his mm-hmm. life in comedy and he was talking about how when he's act he had these bits of shtick that he did like putting the arrow on his head and saying certain things and doing certain things and he said as he started to do bigger and bigger stadiums where there was less room for any sort of subtlety he started relying more and more on doing the sort of set bits and the set lines and yeah. the set little actions that people wanted and they would all piss themselves laughing <laughs> and he said it drove him mad because he said by the end there was no actual substance to the act. It was just him pressing the buttons and he knew if I say this now, they will laugh. If I do this bit now, they will laugh. They don't need to be linked. There has to be no, needs to be no context. It had become just a series of pressing buttons and the audience screamed with laughter. And he actually stopped doing the stand-up because he just couldn't cope with that. And that is exactly what catchphrase is like. And that's sort of what the Arthur Atkinson character that we did was which was based on an act that had reduced itself entirely to catchphrases and that had no no substance beyond that and and that and that was also partly based on on us listening to to like old radio shows like it Mars, that man again which was the biggest comedy thing during the second world war in in britain which was catchphrase based it had all these characters and they would come on you know, there was a cleaning woman who'd come in and say, can I do you now, sir? <laughs> and that was pretty much all she would do. But the audience would scream with laughter because that's what they'd heard before and that's what they wanted them to do. And again, if you listen to it more now, without having grown up and developed and learned those catchphrases and those characters, it is a meaningless jumble of people saying these lines that people are laughing at. So that's sort of where, where Arthur Atkinson was coming on. And that was, in some ways, a comment on the far show that was thinking, well... In 100 years' time, people may look back at the far show and think, what on earth is this? <laughs> I mean, even like Jesse, I remember we're, we're going, uh, you know, uh, oh, today I've been mostly eating, what have you, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just yeah, one well, of those... Yeah, well, it's a very useful, very, 
Mark was very good at coming up with very useful catchphrases that other people could then use and adapt for their own use. And, you know, there's a lot of it. You see it on Twitter, you know, today I've been mostly doing such and such. Um, and, you know, which was nice. is a very useful catchphrase. I use it very, quite a lot in my middle-class existence. <laughs> I'm telling some dreary story about myself. Um, so, yes, when a catchphrase can become useful and people can use it in their own lives, then it, then it has an extended life. It's a way that, you know, like Scorchio is still now used in actual on TV weather broadcasts. If it's hot, people will use the word Scorchio. Twist Tony works on that level. There, yeah. there, is, there is nothing that you can't compare to making love to a beautiful woman. <laughs> I'd hope we get one of those in the, in the podcast, Johnny. <laughs> Um, so the podcast is no, I better stop. <laughs> so um, I know you had an anniversary quite recently, and I really enjoyed the fast show, just a load of blooming catchphrases documentary. Oh, good, good. And so once again, we're kind of reminded how timeless the show is. Sort of, you know, catching up with the characters and seeing where they are now. It was just a, a nice little concept. Yeah, well, we we had been the BBC had approached us originally and said, look, it's twenty. 20- fifth anniversary next year why don't you do a, a fast show special to celebrate we said okay great yeah but you know you need to move fast we had other things on if you wanted to commission it get on quickly and we also said you know how much this is going to cost because we've done the fast show before we're not going to do it cheaper because that would just look shit so yeah if you get on and commission us now as we were used to things working in the past then uh, then we'll do it they said yes of course yes great <laughs> And months went by as they got shuttled between departments and everybody putting their oar in. And eventually they came back to us and said, well, actually, we, we, we don't think we've got a slot for it and we can't afford it. Oh, my God. So that was that. But um, I knew some guys who did quite a lot of stuff for UK TV and I was talking to them about it. And they said, well, we couldn't do a sketch show, but we could do something to um, commemorate it. Yeah. We could do some clips and, and maybe think of a way of doing some new stuff. And we said, okay, yeah, great, let's do that. It'd be fun. It'd be good to do to market somehow or other. So we thought about it, and we thought, well, it's going to be a talking head show with us talking about the old days, and we're all going to look a lot older. Um, how do we do sketches that that we can afford to do on on this budget, and that's going to fit in with what we're doing? And we came up with the idea of of actually having the, the characters on as talking heads as well, filmed in the same sort of environment. Yeah. As if, the, as if the fast show had been a sort of reality show that they had been part of. And, and that was a way, as you say, of, of, of taking into account the fact that we have all got a lot older <laughs> and the characters have got older and it's kind of like, well, where might their lives have gone? And actually I was very pleased with, with, with how it came out and, and I thought that the, the show came together really well. And for me, in some ways, I think that was probably a nicer way of doing the characters than trying to remount all the sketches where people would have just said, well, they're a bit old and tired now, aren't they? Maybe they should have just left it as it was. So so I think it was a fitting way to to mark what. There's a lot of nostalgia around now. You know, people want to recapture their... Well, certainly at the height of COVID, it was a sort of... Uh, it was comforting. Yeah. Because <laughs> people were reminded of, of happier times and a lot of people reminded of when they were kids, watching it with their parents or whatever. And a lot of people remembering, you know, the... the the great comedy that was around the 90s so so it, it was good timing on that front also a lot more people were sitting at home watching tv yeah yeah true <laughs> in terms of the fact that the show has got longevity mm. we're quite pleased with that that was partly by design 
because when we started making the, the fast show, technology was, was changing. Uh, videos were a big thing. DVDs were starting to come in. And people were watching things over and over again. So we wanted to design a show that would stand up to that, which was another reason not to do really long sketches where you set everything up and then eventually you get to the joke because you can't watch something like that more than two or three times. It's just boring. So we thought that idea of just the essence of it, then, then people, it would still be fresh for people. So I think that's one reason it, was, it has, has lasted the test of time. It works perfectly on, on YouTube, which, which, where people enjoy just watching short clips of things. So yeah. We couldn't have anticipated that, but that was a piece of luck. And the other thing was that we, we, you know, we, if we had a black character on the show, we hired a black actor. If we had a woman on the show, we used a woman. We didn't do drag and dress up. Um, we haven't fallen foul of the sort of changes of public perception of, of, of that kind of thing. You know, it, it, it's not because there's so many shows you look back now and you go, oh my God, they really get away with that. You know, I look at things from the 70s with, with my kids who are in their 20s and they're aghast. You know, they can't believe these <laughs> things that happened. Different times. <laughs> and at the time it was just fully accepted. But uh, yeah, no, the uh, Roy and Reenie little bit on that was just, oh, oh my God, it was heartbreaking. You know, I think there's well, a lot of, I mean, lot John, of people John welled up. It. John did it fantastically well. Um, and, you know, we wanted to do something that was was using the characters, that was poignant, but also was still, you know, there was still an element of, of humour to it. You know, it, it is, it, there's an element of comedy to that. And, and, you know, I think quite a lot of what we did on the far show was trying to go just beyond some of the characters like Suli were just utterly superficial they had no inner lives you couldn't do anything else with them other than have them insult someone in the shop yeah but a lot of the other characters we did try and make them human and, and give them fuller lives and so i i think that you know yes uh, people did respond very well very well to that you know and, and you know nobody said oh you, know, you can't make fun of this yeah no it was a fitting tribute i think i think caroline yes, would have exactly. loved it um, so you've been very involved with, with Vic and Bob as well and their various projects over the years, going back to Big Night Out, uh, The Smell Of, Randall and Hopkirk, to name but a few. So how did you get, in, how did you get involved with uh, Vic and Bob initially? Well, I met Vic through a friend at university who was one of his best mates from Darlington. I got to know him and met him a few times and, and my mate Alan, Alan Davidson, who, who, who gave his name to The Filthy Fox, he kept saying, oh, you've got to go and see Jim do some of his, his comedy. He does this great stuff. It's quite quite odd, but I think you'd like it. So eventually I did. I took myself off down to the Goldsmith Tavern in South London where he was doing The Big Night Out. Mm. I think it was one of the last ones they did at the Goldsmith Tavern. Um, and I went down and it was the funniest thing I'd, I'd, I'd ever seen. It was utterly unlike anything anyone else was doing. It was a, a weird mix of the surreal and the mundane and the elements of classic sort of British music hall and avant-garde theatre and music and, and it was just amazing and it was a whole night of entertainment and I said to him afterwards, look, if you do any more of this, I'd love to be involved in some way and this was at the time Paul and I were, were working with Harry so, so we had a bit of a profile as Harry's writers and when they moved to the Albany Empire, which was a, a, a bigger sort of theatrical venue in, in South London. They used to do these two-hour shows every every Sunday night. They'd do a run of several weeks. It'd be a completely new show each week. 
Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, I mean, pretty much all the elements that got distilled down into the, the, the TV version, they, they were doing live. And, and, you know, as I said, no one else was doing that. And they needed lots of other people to come on and do bits, whether it was Novelty Island or just some mad routine while they were going off and changing into some other characters or whatever, or going to get pissed probably knowing them. So Paul and I, you know, I, I said to Paul, you've got to come down and do something. This is just brilliant. And he loved it as well. And so we got very involved with that. And then because we were already doing what was a successful TV comedy show, they got us in to help out when they were moving the big night out to TV and developing as a, as a, as a TV series. So we sort of consulted on that and Paul became script editor and we would appear on it uh, and sort of be there just kind of helping out. And on the back of that, I then became the sort of co-producer of The Smell of Reza Mortimer when they went on to do that. They liked having someone around who could sort of liaise between them and, and the production team and sort of translate their ideas and make it happen because that some people would occasionally be a bit mystified as to what was going on. Uh, and, you know, yeah, we just enjoyed working together and, and doing bits and pieces together. Um, again, when they did Shooting Stars, I, I was a sort of consultant to, to start with and was quite quite involved in, 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 in helping them do that. When they found out that um, Working Title TV had got the rights to Randall and Hopkirk and, and were looking to make it, they got in touch and said, look, we would love to be Random Hot Coat. You know, I mean, Vic's white suit yeah. was entirely inspired by the white suit in the original Random Hot Coat. And everyone seemed to think that was a good idea. And then they said, could we get Charlie in to produce it? Because, again, they trusted me and, and we had a good working relationship. So, so that was huge fun to do. I mean, a massive, ambitious project, but um, it was a great thing to do, yeah. We started on, I think we had 10.5 million viewers for the first episode, which in today's TV, you know, that would, mm. well, there, was, there were celebrations, but in today's TV, that would be an absolute phenomenon. Things now get about get about 2 million, um, because TV has changed. It's got more diverse and spread, and people watch other things. But yeah, it, it, it got 10.5 million viewers, and then sadly, it got slightly less viewers in the next episode, and that declined sort of steadily carried on through until by the end of the second series I think we were down to about four four or five million viewers so in TV terms it wasn't doing what you need you need, mm. you need to grow you need to build your audience and a dwindling audience is not good for you yeah. so no we didn't quite have the success with it that we wanted it never got a sort of big critical critics never got behind it particularly um People didn't. People were a bit confused by it. They weren't sure what to make of it. You, you try and do anything fantasy-based in this country. I mean, I grew up in the 60s where all the best TV was kind of mad fantasy stuff, whether yeah. it was The Avengers or um, Adam Adamant or Department S. Like The Prisoner or... The Prisoner, yeah. yeah. So these amazing shows. And, and, you know, a lot of them were like on ITV. These were big mainstream shows. We did imaginative stuff with sci-fi elements, fantasy elements. Uh, things like obviously Quatermass and Doctor Who and stuff yeah. like this. And then we hit the 70s and everything became kitchen sink drama. Fantasy went out the window, it all became reality and everything was judged on how real it was. And we've never quite recovered from that. We happily watch American stuff mm. from Star Trek on and you know all the sort of fantasy sci-fi stuff that they make, but we just don't do it here unless it's for kids. And so... There was always this problem with Randall Hotcoat saying, well, it's not very realistic, is it? 
And I say, you know, Rick and Bob aren't very real. <laughs> I say, well, they're not supposed to be there. Rick it's and like, Bob. what do you want? He's fucking dead and he's a ghost. <laughs> We're trying to have fun with with this. Um, and, and and people just, just don't get that here. Yeah. Well, uh, what pleased me was that a lot of the people involved in that and Alcott ended up going on to Doctor Who when Russell Davis brought it back. And I was really pleased because for the first time in a long time, fantasy came back and sci-fi came back and, and was successful. And that, you know, we had David Tennant in our first episode. We had Murray Gold doing the music. We had uh, a couple of other writers who went on to, to, to Doctor Who. And in fact, I'd got those writers because they had worked in both drama and worked on the, the Doctor Who books mm. that had kept Doctor Who alive all the years um, that it wasn't on TV. And that's what I wanted people like, in fact... I would have loved to have got Russell to to write an episode because he's brilliant at combining fantasy, non-reality, and really good, strong drama. And I thought he did an amazing job on, on Doctor Who yeah. and managed to to bring that back. And that was, you know, that was what I'd been trying to do with, with Randall Notkirk and and hadn't quite pulled off. But it was a huge fun to do. Yeah, we got Catterick as well. I mean, Catterick again got a very cult cult following. In as much as nobody ever was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, you know, fans that, like myself, Vic and Bob, and you had, uh, you know, Rishi Smith was in there, Matt Lucas. Such an yeah. amazing cast as well. Uh, and I think it's very sort of underplayed. Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun to do. I mean, I, 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 I simply came in on that as a as an actor. I had no other in, involvement in it, and it was great fun. To just I mean, I only did a couple of days, I think, stuck behind the bar. Um but no, I mean, you know, Vic and Bob love getting in mates that they think are funny and, 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 and putting them in things. And, you know, I think that would have been before Matt was doing, obviously he was known for shooting stuff, but before he was doing mm. Little Britain and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, Simon was working with them as well, wasn't he? I think in the early days. I remember him doing some stuff on the big night out. I think he was like just standing yeah, there did, in a coat. Yeah, he come in um, and do the odd character, yeah because he was part of that whole South London scene that they were part of, which was completely sort of separated by the river from, from, from all other comedy and so never got, never got reviewed by the comedy brigade. They were all based in Camden. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was a thriving sort of South London comedy and culture scene, you know, the likes of Malcolm Hardy and uh, Jules Holland and, yeah. and all those guys down there. And, and yeah, Simon and some of his mates would yeah you're right they would appear occasionally on, on the big night out here yeah um so i mean what aspect of your job do you enjoy the most is it writing or are you happy act acting i'm assuming the writing i mean I, yeah i mean i'm a i'm a writer really that's that's yeah. my main job i love performing I, I, I'm, and i really enjoy acting but you know my bread and butter and my day-to-day existence is really as, as a writer and i don't really you know, I have a, I have an acting agent, but I do, I'm not on the phone to them every day saying you must get me another job <laughs> because I've always got tons of writing to get on with. Yeah, um, uh, I, I would love to do. I mean, I haven't done any apart from doing the little bits on the Far Show. I haven't really done any TV performing since I did. Well, in one year I did I did Broadchurch and then uh, Grantchester. Um, I was hoping I might do every crime series that was named <laughs> after a place. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I was going to say about that, actually. You you appeared in uh, Broadchurch, Grantchester and Marple. And uh, so yes. the, the Broadchurch thing was like, it was like seeing you as this, 
I don't know, your character in that, he was pretty, he's <laughs> pretty awful bloke. It was nice to see kind of a, no, a new side. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, it was quite weird doing that because actually what they wanted from me was to say, can you sort of play it as normal as possible? <laughs> you know, and try and get some degree of sympathy for people from the viewers. Um, but of course, that, I think that probably just made him come across as even creepier. <laughs> um, but, you know, I wasn't doing much in front. I, <laughs> I, I was talking to Chris Chibnall when he was doing the post-production on it. Chris Chibnall is the creator of the show. And he said, oh, it doesn't matter about your acting, Charlie. You know, if, if we want to make you appear a bit more sinister, we'll just put an ominous bass tone under the scene. It works perfectly. <laughs> So I was I was in many ways a sort of blank slate that people could project their own stuff onto. I mean, the you know the great thing about Broadchurch is what you need in any in any sort of crime mystery is is everybody has got to appear to be guilty, and in the end everybody has done something wrong. They may not have done the central crime, but they've all got dark and guilty secrets. But yes, I mean I, because it was a serious drama, and and particularly that series, which was you know obviously about sexual assault, it was a pretty heavy subject yeah. it, it, it wasn't a sort of jolly Miss Marple oh someone's been had their <laughs> brains knocked out with a candelabra it was yeah. someone had been raped I couldn't sort of go in and do a sort of make him a sort of character which I would do in a comedy mm. you know you can have slightly more mad glasses and maybe have a padded arse or um, <laughs> and do more of a funny voice and, and, and as such I found that quite difficult because I, I had no way of judging whether what I was doing was any good in comedy, you know. Yeah. People are laugh, either laughing or they're not. Getting a reaction. But in something like that, where just trying to do it very normally and be quite normal was quite hard work. Yeah, it must be a nice challenge, you know, keep, keeping yourself challenged with different stuff. Yeah, it was like great that. to do. And I thought, well, you know, the phone will not stop ringing on the back of this. But in fact, it hasn't started ringing. <laughs> so beginning and the end of my, my uh, serious acting career... Because then I went on to do Grantchester straight after, and that that is a bit more in the sort of uh, jolly historical drama. We could do more character-based stuff in that. So I did much more of a character, as it were, in, in Grantchester. But that was great fun as well. And it was, I mean, the main reason I did that because I wanted to work with um, Jeremy Norton. Yeah. So I mean, let's let's talk a bit about your fantastic work as an author now. Some people might not might not know about this uh, this angle to your. String well, it to depends your bow. how old you are, you see. Yes, yes, that's the thing. I suppose kids with the young adult fiction would know you, yeah, obviously they don't know, know you know for the books. Yeah, doing The Fast Show, because mm. that was all 20 years before they were even born, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, how did the... You started off with the Young Bond series. You'd, had, uh, you'd done other books before, uh, but yeah, the Young did, Bond series... I did four adult crime books yeah. in the early 90s, and then because The Fast Show and TV took over so much, I had no more time to write books. Um, but I'd always wanted to go back to it. And then my editor from those days ended up working for the Ian Fleming estate and on the back of the huge success of Harry Potter and the fact that there was money to be made and it, it was a sort of viable thing to, to do kids books which it hadn't really been before Harry Potter Yeah. and also because of the success of Anthony Horowitz's Alex Ryder books which were very much a sort of teenage James Bond type setup, they thought we've got the actual James Bond we should be doing this so I was one of a number of writers that um, Kate, my ex-editor, approached. She knew I was a big Bond fan. She knew I had three boys. Um, she thought that my writing style, sort of hard-boiled, stripped-back 
writing style would work well for kids. And I was lucky enough to get the job and, and to get an entirely new career as a children's author at a, at a relatively late stage of life. And, and going back to what you said, it was quite funny because, you know, we had early meetings with the production team at, at Puffin and saying, well, you know, this would be great. You know, publicity is going to be so easy of getting you out to the schools because, you know, it's going to be, here he is, it's Charlie Higson off the fast show. <laughs> uh, and I was saying, these kids won't have ever watched the fast show. The parents might, the teachers might, but I mean absolutely nothing to these kids. You know, they're 10 year old kids, and, and it was, you know, they were, well, they weren't even born when the fast show started. So they said, oh, cool, we hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I mean, what it did, you know, my profile as who I was meant that I, I could get access to reviews, well, that, that and the fact that it was James Bond, and, and go on, you know, the likes of breakfast TV and mm. radio shows. So it, that side of it helped on that front. But in terms of the kids, really, it was only going to work if they liked the books. Nothing else would, would mean anything to them. Uh, and, and kids really loved them. And, and that's why when I finished The Young Bond, I carried on writing for kids and wrote the Enemy series of, of kind of kids versus zombies. Um, so, I mean, did you feel any, any pressure, you know, writing The Young Bond with a, for a character that's so well-established? you know, in fiction and in history well, and stuff. Well, when I was first offered a job and started writing, because they didn't, uh, they said, look, we're not going to announce this until we finish the book and we're all happy with it, because if we don't like it, you know, we won't do it. It's got to be right. So let's wait till everything's in place and then we can announce it. So I wrote it in a complete uh, vacuum, as it were. And yeah. I just thought, this is the most fun job ever. I can actually sit down and write the names Bond. James Bond and I'm writing about the real fucking James Bond so it was it was brilliant and I thought you know I'm writing a book for my kids to enjoy um, and I would read it to them as a, as a bedtime story which is why the books are so violent because <laughs> they would you know get bored and insist I kill someone else um, so so I just happily wrote it and, it and it did come out well I was pleased with it and, and the Fleming estate were very pleased with it and, and Puffin were very pleased with it at which point they started making the announcements. And it was at that point I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> I have taken on you know, probably the best-known character in the world. Yeah. A lot of people are quite invested in this. And I started looking at the websites, and they're absolutely fanatical. And, of course, everybody was furious. <laughs> All the diehard fans up in arms, saying, well, what is this? We don't want the Harry Potter version of James Bond <laughs> having his bedtime hot milk shaken not stirred and worrying about doing his homework um this is appalling written by a british comedian for god's sake this is going to be absolutely dire yeah um but because james bond does appeal to that male collecting instinct mm. um and they have to have everything to do it a lot of them would say i there is no way i will ever read this book i will of course buy it because I have to have everything to do with James Bond on my shelf. I thought, fair enough, you buy it, that's fine with me. You don't have to read it. Um, and so I, I did get nervous then. But, I mean, I, I knew deep down that I'd been true to the spirit of Fleming and that I, that I was trying to sort of channel his, where he came from in mm. James Bond. Um, and actually when it came out, they all said, oh, you know what, this is this is okay, this is... This is in the spirit of Fleming. We, we like this. And, and the, the books are quite grown up. I mean, I've always thought to write for kids, you don't write down for them, to them. You don't patronise them. And in, in, in a sense, I thought what I'm doing is I'm writing an adult book 
in which the central character is a child. Um, there's certain things you don't do. There's certain language, um, yeah. sex. You know, obviously, I, I wasn't true to, to the spirit of racism that runs through Ian's <laughs> books. Um, and, you know, he is a 13-year-old schoolboy at Eton in the 1930s, and you kind of think a 13-year-old schoolboy at Eton in the 1930s probably would have been fairly insufferable by modern standards. So there, there are things you change, but the main thing was that it, I wanted it to feel like proper proper James Bond, and for kids reading it to feel like it was proper James Bond. I remember one early meeting we had with Puffin again where they said, this book is quite, quite violent. <laughs> a lot of people get killed. And I said, well, look, this is James Bond, and even a 10-year-old boy coming to James Bond will have certain expectations. They will expect people to be killed in, in imaginative ways. <laughs> <laughs> So um, let's t- talk about music now. Obviously, you you were singing a singer in a punk band. Um, so I mean, what bands have you been into during your life? Any kind of big love affairs with any particular bands? Oh gosh, I mean, I do listen quite widely. Uh, I listen to a lot of classical music, a lot of jazz. I particularly listen to a lot of world music, film music. I don't listen to a lot of pop music. Mm. Um, I don't really keep up with the world of R&B and and rap. Um, so I have fairly eclectic tastes, and, uh, I, and and what I like is trying to discover new stuff, and, that, and that's why Spotify is, is so good for, for kind of pointing you in the direction of things that you wouldn't otherwise have have come across. I could, I could list some of the, the bands, but they'd you know they'd be the obvious bands that probably almost anyone of my generation would say. Yeah, I mean, are you, would you be a, would you have been a gig goer in your time? In the seventies. I, I was never, I never liked festivals, um, never been too happy in crowds and sort of milling yeah. about and being uncomfortable. Um, but yes, I mean, the thing about music is it is, it is always connected to, to drugs and whatever drug of the day is, is, is popular will drive whatever music is around. And obviously in the days of, of punk, it was, it was speed and that made it fun to go to concerts because you could throw yourself around with, with gay abandon. Um, I didn't really keep up with, with the sort of MDMA ecstasy scene in the 80s, so I had no interest in the sort of club rave scene. So, yeah, a, a, a sort of, I suppose, from 76 to about 1981, I would go to a lot of gigs, but then, then I was in a band, and so I was at a gig most nights, but it was me actually on the stage. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I've always loved music. I've loved playing music and, and being involved in music. But going to gigs is not necessarily a huge part of my life. Um, so, I mean, how have you been coping? Have you coped with uh, with lockdown? Are you still being fairly productive? Are you working on stuff at the moment? Well, uh, you know, I've I've been one of the lucky, horribly smug few <laughs> where, whose lives haven't been hugely altered because I was working from home anyway. Um, so, and I can always write, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a new novel at the moment. So, uh, so that side of things has not changed. I mean, what did change is that I, I had two or three big TV projects in development, which, and a huge film project in development, which because of COVID, no one knows if they'll happen and probably never will happen because they were quite big sort of international productions. Um, so that side of things has taken a huge whack. But I've been able to carry on working and, and my life hasn't changed substantially. 
but of my three boys in their 20s, it's been a disaster. Yeah. Um, and in fact, my second boy is, is a singer in a band, and they had two big tours this year. They had all the summer festival circuit, including Glastonbury, and they haven't been able to do any of that. And so it was. this was their big sort of going to be their big breakout year. And it's not happened. I mean, like like all other bands, they've tried to do lockdown gigs and yeah, online stuff and all that side of things. But but for, for young people, what they want is to go out there and be at a gig and mingling and having that physical experience. So you know, and now nobody really knows that. I was listening to the radio a couple of days ago. Someone they were talking about a band who had been supposed to be touring this year. They'd they'd, they'd put their tour back to March of next year. And then they had just announced that they had moved it to March 2022. Because you can't, you know, it's too, you lose too much money if you try and book things in and set it all up and then have to keep cancelling it. And you can't get insurance on it either. Yeah. So, yeah, for the, I mean, for the music industry on that side of things, it's been an absolute disaster. So, so I, whilst I've personally been immune from it, I've not really been immune from it because, because, of, because of my kids. Yeah. So, what's the name of your your boys' band? They're called uh, Koala, spelled K A W A L A, and they're very good. Very good. I'll have to check them out. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, the, the last, uh, the only live gigs I've been to in the last two years have been their gigs. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a really weird time, isn't it, for like hospitality industry and music, and you know, well, it's you... everything because it's... It's, because there's a whole knock-on effect. Of, yeah. Of, of all of that, is everything is interconnected and. Nobody has been able to say, well, I've been untouched, everything's carried on as normal, so apart from perhaps landlords. But even those, mm. you know, have a lot of people defaulting. At some point, the government is going to have to say, we can't get rid of COVID. It is an established disease now. We have to somehow get on and live with it. Uh, there is no other way around it. You know, and, I, and I, I don't think they would ever come out and say it, but I think sending all the students back is an experiment. Let's see if they will just all infect each other and not be too badly infected, and then we can get on with things. And those people who who are vulnerable will be able to protect themselves. Yeah, and be careful, and 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 the rest of us being careful. We have to go back. We we cannot cannot continue like this. Society cannot function. Can you can you tell us anything about this new novel you're doing as well, Charlie? Are you uh, is it as as a young adult? Well, I've got, a, uh, I've got a kid's book out next May. It was meant to be out this May, but that got put back a year yeah. because of COVID. Because it's a summer book, and it's a... <laughs> well, it was the worst time to come out. It's about a kid going on summer holiday to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be coming out right at the time, when it was all like, oh, my God, Italy's going to hell. Um, and because, uh, you know, kids weren't at school, there was no point in publishing kids' books. You know, Puffin had said they'd tried publishing, carrying on and publishing a couple of books, and they said they might as well have just dropped them down a well. Oh, my God. Nobody was interested. People wanted comfort reads. They wanted to reread books they'd read before, whatever. Um, so that's been put back to next May, so that'll be the next thing out. That is a, a, a comedy book for, for younger readers, actually, than, than my last books, although it also can be read by adults, because, again... Is telling an adult story through the eyes of a, of a kid. He's a younger kid. He goes on holiday and he's thrown in. As you are on holiday, you are thrown into very much, you have much more close contact with adults. You know, you spend your whole time living in quite close proximity to them. Um, so it, it's kind of the adult world seen through the eyes of this kid. And the book I'm writing at the moment is, is a 
is in the vein of the four books I wrote in the early 90s. It's a sort of dark, black comedy, adult crime book. Yeah. I wanted to say as well about the... Uh, how are you thinking of the uh, Paul and Bob's fishing show? Ah, shit. <laughs> a couple of old men, I think. A couple of old men just moaning on the riverbank. about bank. their hearts and fish. <laughs> Who wants to watch that? No, I mean, it's been an extraordinarily successful. It really has. And people have loved the fact that it flies in the face of most modern TV. It's not all fast-cut, whiz-bang, young people in bikinis. It's, um, it's just two old friends spending time together and 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 people have really warmed to that i mean it's a it's a complete conflict from, from paul and bob who are two of the most unpleasant men you'd, you'd ever like to have dealings with in real life but they come across as these lovely friendly avuncular figures slightly curmudgeonly on paul's, paul's part so they, yeah. they've, they've managed a, a great magic trick there <laughs> yeah they just got a full series didn't they as well so i mean you know they must be doing something right well, what it is is that people love watching it, and the viewing figures are really strong. So, um, and 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 Paul and Bob love doing it. So, yeah. And people love seeing Bob fall over. I think is the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, they always have. You know, I remember when when Paul was script editing uh, Big Night Out. He, he he used to say, "Well, all I do is I go in and I say, uh, Bob, can you just fall over?" <laughs> oh, Vic, have fallen. Yes. <laughs> Got it down to a fine art now, I think. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. It's been great having a chat. I hope I haven't haven't bored you to death. 